Today's exciting because uh, we're actually going to watch Paul and Barnabas. You know, we've been in the study of Acts. We're going to watch Paul and Barnabas um, finish up this first missionary journey. And uh, we're concluding chapter 14 in the book of Acts. And it's it's been a pretty wild ride uh, since they started back all the way at the beginning of chapter 13. Um, the church sent them out in Antioch uh, back in chapter 13, like we said. And they went out with a team. Paul, Barnabas, and a couple of others like John Mark and, and others that were with him. Uh, and they were equipped with, with just two things. The gospel and the spirit uh, who was with them. Uh, they were empowered by him. And everywhere they went, we've seen this again and again, they preached in the synagogues that Jesus of Nazareth is the fulfillment of Israel's hopes. I mean, that was like, that was their message. God's been faithful to Israel by raising up her promised Messiah, the promised descendant of David. And uh, even though the people of Jerusalem rejected him and had him killed, God ordained this suffering as a sacrifice to atone for sins. And not only did that happen, but God raised Jesus, Paul would preach. He raised him from the dead and enthroned him in heaven. And now, as, re- as the resurrected king, he rules eternally on, uh, on David's throne in heaven. And he's going to return one day to, to judge and rescue his people, uh, to establish his reign over all the earth. And now, Paul and Barnabas preach, it's the time for repentance. People must turn from sin, from turn from their idolatry, and, and take refuge in this coming king. And they've got to be restored to, to God the Jews, again, in the synagogues, they need to be restored to God and used as a light to reach the Gentile nations. Uh, their, their purpose is to be like a beacon of hope for these Gentile lands. Salvation is coming to them, to the ends of the earth. And God intends to restore not only Israel, but every nation under heaven to himself. That's, his, that's the purpose, and that's what, we've been, that's what we've seen through the book of Acts so far. And then they just, this message is echoed through the kind of the corridors of each synagogue they were in, um, in each of the respective towns that they journeyed in this, this first missionary journey. And we've seen that this message elicited quite a response, didn't it? In the various cities they were in, literally thousands of Jews turned to Christ and found forgiveness in the promised spirit. But many also rejected this message. Um, the apostles divided the synagogues and even entire cities, like we saw a few weeks ago, uh, around the kingship of Christ. And Gentiles came to, to Christ in droves too, uh, but others took, sides of the, took the side of the believing Jews. And persecution mounted against the apostles. They were slandered, they were run out of town, and eventually Paul was stoned. And that's kind of where we left off last week. But amidst all of this persecution... God preserved His people. He preserved the apostles. And not only that, He planted thriving churches right in the midst of all this persecution. And so one theme that we saw just crystal clear through this missionary journey is that when when the King Jesus, when He makes His plans, it's like, woe to the person that stands in the way of that. Um, He will fulfill what He's intending to do in planting churches in the nations. And so, we might be tempted at this point kind of as we're completing this journey with Paul and Barnabas today, to, uh, to think that the work's done. Okay, churches have been planted. 
right? Uh, there's lots of people converted uh, in each of the cities that they went to. And so in kind of as, in our book, that would be charted as, this, as a ministry success. And now they get, now they need to come back to the home church and kind of report about it, tell about it, tell what happened. Well, that's almost where we're at. But the work isn't quite finished, according to Paul and Barnabas, according to Luke, who's recording these stories for us. And in fact, there are two tasks that haven't happened yet that are absolutely vital to the, uh, what we'll call the long-term survival of the church. To the church's ability to continue, uh, in the mission. And Paul and Barnabas know this. And that's why they, they risk life and limb to get back to these churches. So, as we're kind of working through this, this first missionary journey, here's, you know, where we've been. They were commissioned for the work in chapter 13. They went to Cyprus. This is our review. Antioch, Iconium, the cities of Lyconia. Now today, we're going to see that they complete this work. They finish it up with these two vital tasks. And they return to, to Antioch to give a report to the churches. And so, before the, the missionary work or the mission is considered finished, Paul and Barnabas must carry out two final tasks. They're vital to the long-term health of the church, and they're incredibly important for us to observe today. And we're gonna, man, we're gonna flesh out some implications from these, from these tasks. And so, just, if you're not already there, you can turn to chapter 14. And, uh, this first vital task, is um, what, we'll, what we'll say, we'll, we'll frame it up like this. They must strengthen the churches with a theology of suffering. Paul and Barnabas must strengthen the churches with a theology of suffering. Look in verse 20, chapter 14. I'm going to pick it up in the previous story. It says, but when the disciples gathered about Paul, this is after he was stoned, he rose up and entered the city and on the next day, he went with Barnabas to Derby. That's the second city of, of Lyconia. In verse 21 is where our text begins today. When we had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. So they must strengthen the churches with a theology of suffering. That's this, this task that's got to be done before they can check the mission box off, or the, the first of two. And so Paul's first task is to put some spiritual steel in the backbone of these young, young churches. And they go back, Luke says, specifically to strengthen them. Um, to strengthen them to endure persecution. That's the idea. Paul knew that these young churches may not understand what to do with the trials that they encounter. And so he provides what we'll call a theology of suffering for them. And now Luke's just given us a thumbnail sort of sketch, a little summary version of this theology of suffering, saying through many trials we must enter, or through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. So it's just sort of a thumbnail sketch, but it's packed with significance as we're going to see. And so, like you know, in this story, we kind of we kind of just parachuted you in, but they they come from Iconium. Um, Paul's just stoned there. Uh, the Lord revives him. He goes back into the city, encourages that church, and then he's, he goes on to Derby, kind of the last stop in this journey that they've taken all the way to Derby. 
And they arrive there, Luke says, and they make many disciples. It's sort of just this passing phrase. It's like, yep, that happened. They made a large number of disciples in Derby. Uh, pretty par for the course. <laughs> and now they're going to return, Paul says, to these three areas that he just was in. These three cities. To Iconium, to Lystra, to Lystra and then and then to, um, to Antioch. And now this is intentional. Paul's returning to the three cities where he experienced persecution, right? The persecution started in Antioch, and that's kind of the, the, that first city where, it, um, where the apostles were run out of town, literally. And so in all these cities, they've experienced persecution. That's super significant because Paul is coming back now to really establish these churches because these churches are going to face the similar kinds of persecution that he faced. And this really highlights uh, Paul's shepherding concern. Uh, Paul's shepherding concern for these churches. Paul was willing to put himself at a high level of risk to get back to these people and shepherd them in faith. He's caring for this church. And so I, I think it's just helpful as, 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 a, as an elder, as elders, as leaders here. For me, one question I asked myself was, what what kind of shepherding care do I provide this church and then what kind by extension do you provide for each other do we share this kind of of Pauline if we will shepherding care this concern and so just incredible incredible concern for the church that we see here just put himself in harm's way to get back to him so how in particular does Paul provide this spiritual strength to these disciples what does the text say well it says he gives them these two encouragements or exhortations and uh, these are the same perspectives that we need when life is hard. And I don't know about you, but there's different times and seasons of life where it's harder than others. And so we need these same perspectives, um, and we need to adopt this, this similar theology of suffering. So what does, what does Paul do? First off, he tells them to hang in there. Don't forsake the faith, because life gets difficult. Look, look at what he says in... Um, in verse 22, it says, Strengthening the souls of disciples, we can translate it this way, strengthening, strengthening their souls by encouraging them to continue in the faith. Okay? So by encouraging them, by exhorting them, by calling them, if you will, to, to keep at it, continue in the faith, don't give up, don't stop believing the truths that came to you. Cling to them. So why would they stop believing? Because they were getting hunted down for it. It was hard. It was difficult. So is this really the, the right, the right path? So Paul's saying, no, don't, don't stop hanging there. Uh, keep believing. And he also tells them that, uh, a sort of a second exhortation or encouragement, he tells them that tribulations are the necessary prerequisite for entering the kingdom. Suffering or trial is, is the necessary prerequisite in order to enter the kingdom. So look, look at what he says there. Strengthening the souls of the disciples by encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must, catch that word, we must enter the kingdom of God. And so Paul is just reworking their expectations here, isn't he? Tribulation, suffering, is part of being a disciple of Christ. 
And this is the pathway to enter into the kingdom. It means you're on the right track, in other words. It means that you're headed toward, headed toward the kingdom. And so, uh, this isn't new to us in the gospel of, or in the book of Acts or in the gospel of Luke beforehand. Jesus has already warned his disciples about this. So, uh, I just got it up on the screen for you here. Look in Luke 21. You don't have to turn there. You can just follow along on the screen. This is in the midst of Jesus teaching about what's, what's to come. This sort of end time, um, tribulation that's coming. And Jesus says in verse 12, But before all this, they will lay their hands on you, the disciples, and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. So there's an evangelistic element to the persecution. Settle it, therefore, in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom, which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up, even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And some of you they will put to death. We saw that with Stephen. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. Now, wait a minute. You said that some of them are going to die. He's talking about eternal life here. By your endurance, meaning if you keep at it, right? What Paul said, keep believing the faith. By your endurance, you will gain your lives, meaning eternal life in the coming kingdom, the resurrection life uh, that's coming. And so, this temporary life is full of tribulation, he says, for the disciples. Um, and in particular for them, they have this unique ability to bear witness during this time, witness to God's power. And as suffering happens and the witness continues and the churches are planted, that just brings God all the more glory and shows that the gospel is that much more true um, as God continues to establish this in the midst of difficulty. And so not only does Jesus warn his disciples about this, kind of put this in their minds, he also models it for them. So in his own life, suffering preceded his glory. Suffering preceded the kingdom. And here's what he says. You know, the disciples on Luke 24 are all discouraged because their king had been killed, and rightly so. And so Jesus kind of comes to them in sort of camouflage, and he interprets for them really the significance of, of the death and resurrection of the Messiah. And he says, he said to them in verse 25, Oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary? Same word as in our text. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And glory is a reference for the kingdom or kingship. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself, particularly his suffering and his, his resurrection and how those fulfill scripture. And so, my only point here that I'm trying to make is that Jesus modeled this, this suffering before the kingdom and he's calling his disciples that they're going to they're going to experience the same kinds of things. And Paul here in our text is sort of an extension of this chain. He's saying, okay, not only is it for Jesus, not only is it for church leaders, but it's also for the church. Right? You see that connection? It's for the church. So we, through many trials, we must enter into the kingdom. It's for all of us. And so, just to put it succinctly, trials are necessary because they're God's choice instrument in conforming you to Christ. 
Trials are necessary. Difficulty in life is necessary because it's, it's Christ's choice instrument in conforming you to himself. It's his choice instrument in displaying his great grace and power in your life. It's his choice instrument in causing you to bear more fruit. You know, kind of the pruning imagery of John 15. The painful pruning, but the, it yields more fruit as a result. And the trials can range from these inconvenient circumstances, kind of the daily irritations, <laughs> you know what I'm talking about, all the way to these soul-rending trials uh, that, you, the, that are incredibly painful. You may never rid yourself of the pain in this life. And so it, the trials can take any form or fashion uh, from, from the most insignificant to the most significant. And Jesus says we should expect them all. And Paul echoes the same thing. And so, oftentimes though, what happens in the church is that there isn't a theology of suffering. Um, there's another message being taught that, that Christ has a, a wonderful plan for your life. And He does have a wonderful plan for your life. Uh, it's His sovereign plan that includes suffering, right? And so, um, and a lot is at stake in the church if we neglect this, this truth, this doctrine. A lot's at stake. And so I just want to highlight a few things that are at stake if we neglect this theology of suffering. Okay? A few things that are at stake if we neglect this, this theology of suffering in the church. So at best, we're not ready for the trials. Uh, we're surprised. What do I mean by at best? Well, at best meaning like this is the, this is the best case scenario for us if we don't have a theology of, of suffering. That we're just surprised when life is hard. We're caught off guard because we don't see it coming. We don't expect it. And so we definitely don't think that God would bring that trial on us for our good. That's not, on, that's not in our thinking. Okay? And then we're tempted to react in a number of ways out of that. Kind of that blind side by the trial. We're tempted to, to become afraid by the trials or of the trials or of future trials that may happen as a result of being faithful to Christ. And so what happens in that fear, out of that fear, is that we start living calculated lives, the lives that are insulated. Um, they're not really completely devoted to Christ. Now, we may have sort of a veneer of devotion to Christ, but they're not really devoted. And so we don't selflessly love others because they might hurt us. Uh, we, we don't reach out to others because they might reject us, make fun of us. We fear the trials that, that, that total devotion to Christ will bring. And so we don't really follow him. That's another thing that's at stake if we don't have a, a true theology of, of suffering here. Or maybe you don't grow afraid. Maybe you just grow disillusioned and discontent under the trial because you don't understand what God's doing in it. You don't see his clearly revealed purpose in the trial. So you, you become disillusioned. You become discontent under the trial. And sometimes we think life's not supposed to be this way. It's not supposed to be this hard, and I don't deserve it to be this hard. I, what, what did I do to, to, to deserve this? It's supposed to be easy. I'm supposed to be carefree, right? Pleasurable, full of life and happiness. Well, that's coming in the kingdom, more full than we can ever imagine. But he says, according to Paul, according to Jesus, that this life is a hard road. It will be difficult. And so if, we don't, if we're not equipped with this theology of suffering, we're going to grow disillusioned and discontent um, under, under the trial. 
And that disillusionment leads to some, some questions, questions that arise. And we, we're tempted to question and resent, ultimately, a perfect God. We think things like this. Is He really as good as He says He is? Is He, if He is good, is He as wise as He claims to be? Could He not have routed this a different way? Okay, maybe He's good and He's wise, but is, is He really in complete control? If he's good and, and wise, and then maybe he's just maybe he's lacking in power. Maybe Satan can kind of thwart his plans here, and, and sort of God's got to react to this circumstance. Maybe he's not completely in control. How can he love me and let me suffer like this? See where this leads. Questioning God um, over time without repentance and faith will lead to resenting God. And it's a, it's, a, it's a dark path here. And that's all coming from the fact that we don't understand what's going on in suffering. Okay? And kind of taking a different route, something else that happens is we actually, according to 2 Corinthians 1, we cut ourselves off from God's true comfort. Paul says that he rejoices in the suffering, not because the suffering's good, but because of what it's producing in him. And part of what it's producing is this experience of the profound comfort from the Lord Himself. Profound comfort from the Lord Himself. And if you want to just jot down 2 Corinthians 1, that's what you see. Trials lead to God's comfort. And then Paul says that comfort that he's been comforted with leads to being able to extend that in ministry to other people who are also suffering. And so if we kind of put it negatively, something else we lose or, or, or something else that's at stake is opportunities for fruit are lost or squandered if we don't know what's going on in, in our suffering, if we're not expecting this kind of suffering that Christ says. So many opportunities for glorious fruit are just lost. They're squandered. We don't, we don't take advantage of these opportunities um, when we don't have a biblical theology of suffering. And I, I don't know about you, but I often miss these little God-ordained opportunities in, in not the big things, not the big trials that, that hit me between the eyes, but the little ones. Um, one in particular, on the front burner for me, is my colicky daughter. Um, she, we just had baby Eleanor, and she cries, man. And it is hard, you know. That's like, people have been doing this for centuries, but for my little soul, it's tough. And... You know, I'm up in the middle of the night with her at different times. Mary's up way more than me, so it's much more sanctifying for her than it is for me. But in those moments, it's like my theology is challenged because God is ordaining every one of those little cries. He is. It's funny, but He is. Every sleepless night comes from Him, comes from the Lord. And so I miss these, I squander these little opportunities because I grow angry or frustrated or, ah, I just want sleep, I just need sleep. So, and I, the reality is we do need sleep. And so, but the Lord is ordaining these circumstances um, for us. And, and, and often, what my point is just the little inconveniences of life are often just lost or squandered because God, we don't really connect the dots of God working in these ways. And so, not only do we lose opportunities for fruit, but we lose opportunities for evangelism. They're also lost and squandered because we're so fixated on the, the trial, getting out of the trial, being self-focused in the trial, not seeing what God's doing in the trial, 
is we're not bearing fruit, and if we're not bearing fruit, then the watching world is not seeing any power of the gospel display in our, in our lives. If we put it on the flip side, the fruit that's produced when somebody's suffering is very, very powerful, isn't it? When you see that, and an unbelieving world sees that, and they, they, they see, where is that power coming from? Because I don't have that. You know what I mean? You know what I'm talking about? You've probably seen it. You've probably experienced that in somebody's life. If, um, where you just see joy and sustaining grace in somebody's life because they're submitting to God in the trial. So, opportunities for evangelism are lost or squandered. And then that, that leads to just us just kind of summarizing here, just kind of putting it bluntly. We really can't help other people who are suffering um, if, we're not, if we're not equipped with a true theology of suffering. What ends up happening is we get offer people platitudes and kind of things that just sort of skim the surface of, you know, these, oh, God, is, oh, he doesn't want this for you. You know, it's like, is that biblical? Like, let's, let's get to it. Let's look at what God says about the trial and, and actually see what he's aiming to produce in this. And so we can't help others if we don't know what God's doing. And ultimately, and at worst, if we started, if, if we're not ready as the, Best case scenario, and the worst case scenario is down here, 9 and 10. We ultimately, trials uh, leaves to fall away from the faith. Which we know that it would prove that we were never of the faith. So that's like the soil, the parable of soils where the gospel takes root. Uh, the roots don't go very deep and the trials come and it scorches the plant and the plant dies. And so uh, trials are serious and it's important to know what God's doing in them. And then... If we don't fall away, another form of falling, if we don't fall away, like, obviously, another form of falling away is, is actually changing the gospel message to make it more palatable. Which I would argue is what we've done in a lot of Western Christianity, in the, especially in American evangelicalism. We've begun to change the message, water it down to where it's not the same gospel that Christ preached or the apostles preached. And as a result, it's, it's made, it's not, it's not as confrontational. It doesn't, it, it doesn't evoke as much pain or suffering. Um, and so, but that's a form of falling away from the faith, um, I would argue. And so, that, those are the worst case scenarios if we're not, that's what's at stake without this theology of suffering. And Paul knows that, guys. So Paul plants these churches and he doesn't just go back to Antioch and say, look how great this is. Paul goes back to these churches to make sure they understand that it's through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. So incredibly, incredibly important. And so one little key question here that I, I like to ask myself in these moments, maybe in the middle of the night with a crying baby, is what fruit does God want to produce in me in this trial? Okay? If I know that's His objective, and that God loves me. He's in complete control. He's good. I'm not going to doubt those things. So, okay, all those are true. Yet, here's this painful circumstance. This difficult circumstance. So, what is God trying to do with my heart in this circumstance? And so, to continue our illustration with the crying baby, I can either get frustrated and be sour in the middle of the night, or I can let this thing turn... And I'm still working through this, guys, you know, and, and be fruit producing. So like, being patient, cultivating that in my heart, cultivating a love for my wife. If, if she's overwhelmed and I want to get sleep, so I need to get out of bed and like come over there to her and serve her, pray with her, 
Help her think this thing through. Just be there to listen with her. Like, that's fruit, guys. Like, those are good things that God is wanting to produce in my heart through this circumstance. And so, we can be like a fruit-bearing tree. So, what fruit does God want to produce in me through this trial? And that, that fruit is going to just rebound to His glory. And we're going to experience, as we experience the sufferings of Christ, we also experience His fellowship and His, um, just the glory of His, of the resurrected life. And so, that's just a, a key question that I, that I try to ask myself um, in the midst of a hard circumstance. So, there's a lot at stake here. This is our first point. Uh, they must strengthen the churches with the theology of suffering. That's their, that's their first final task. And then their second one, and we'll just skim through this real quick. They must transition the churches to elder leadership. They must transition the churches to elder leadership. Look in verse 23. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So what we see here is uh, uh, Paul's not done. The mission isn't complete until he's able to transition them over to uh, a plurality of elders that are, that are leading and governing that church, each of those churches. So the language is pretty specific. It says that he appoints elders plural, so there's a number of men in every church, in each of the churches. And so there's church in Antioch, church in Iconium, and all those churches have a plurality, meaning just there's, there's more than one uh, leader in those churches. There's a plurality of leaders. And so, Rich just preached a great message on this uh, like three weeks, two, three weeks ago. And so I'm not going to reinvent the wheel here. Just go back and listen to that message about elders and church leadership. Um, just a few quick things to add. This term elder is not new. Uh, it's, it would have been recognized in the, the world that Paul and Barnabas were living in. So, uh, all the way to Egypt, the Greeks, uh, everybody, not just Jewish, understood this word for elder to mean leader. Like leader in the community, leader in the, the politics and whatever it is. The elder kind of represented the wisdom and the maturity of of typically older men. And so, uh, and then it has a background in Judaism as well. The leaders of the synagogues were called elders. Not, that's not all they were called, but that was a, a key a key phrase. So, I think the, the church has adopted this terminology for its leaders. And this is, the, this is the number one title for a church leader in all of Scripture. So, we, we call ourselves pastors, and we kind of use that term a lot. And that's, that's fine. That's a biblical title too. It's used like twice. Elder is used almost everywhere. And so, um, that's the typical term, and it's just it's the, the leader of the con- leaders of the congregation. So, Paul's transitioning them over. You can write down Acts 20 for further study to look at, if we're just staying in the book of Acts, if you look at what Paul teaches to these elders, um, what their responsibilities are, how they're to carry those things out. And there is, if you just want to summarize it, model the apostle Paul. I mean, that's really the summary of Acts 20. Just act like me as I act like Christ. That's the idea. And so, I just want you to see that before they commend this church, meaning that before they sort of set this church and sort of take their hands off and say, okay, Lord, we commend this church to you. Before they do that, they appoint elders. They appoint these leaders in the, in the church. And so, just a few implications from this. Is without healthy, recognized elder leadership, the church is in danger. 
Make sense? You see that? Paul didn't want to just leave the church without leadership and say, mission's done. The church is in danger. And so, stating it in reverse, the church is protected and strengthened when these kinds of leaders are in place. And I think this is one reason that we can celebrate 75 years of ministry at Timberlake. I mean, that is significant, guys. 75 years of one church, one place, striving after the gospel, and I think just because a history of of faithful leadership. So that's one implication. Another one is that missions, when we think about missions, it's not finished until churches are transitioned to a plurality of elders. So that means that any missions plan or missions model that doesn't include raising up elders and installing them isn't a complete mission strategy. Make sense? It's not complete mission strategy. So there's a lot of good stuff going on in the world and different things. But if we look at Scripture, it's got to include, or at least have a plan to include down the road, a faithful plurality of elders in the church. Without it, the church is in danger. And then just one final implication. Um, I, I, by the way, I included that implication for any of you who are thinking about missions, okay? And just interested in that, and because there's a plethora of missions teaching out there that's nuts, okay? And so let's just root ourselves in Scripture and, and trust God to, to bless that. And so the final, final implication here is that, that, that churches need just uh, more than just one senior pastor, kind of in quotes, Um not more than one senior pastor. Churches need more than just a senior pastor. That's a better way to say it. In order to lead and shepherd and care for the church, as Christ would have us do. Now, why is that important? Why do I bring that out? Well, because there's a lot of people in the church, right? A lot of souls to care for. And one man can't possibly do all that. And so when the church has this expectation that, that I'll, we only have one pastor, and he's my guy, this is my pastor... He's inevitably going to let everybody down because he can't be there all the time for every single person in the same capacity. And that's not the biblical model. <laughs> the biblical model is a plurality of leaders who are able to, to sort of divide and conquer. It's not wrong to have a senior pastor or those titles, but in reality, when we boil it down, it's a leadership across the board that's actively shepherding all the members of that flock. And so according to the New Testament, most of these guys are unpaid. Some of them are paid. That's the New Testament model. And so we could flesh all that out later. I'm five minutes over, out of time. And so you can read on to see in the rest of our text that it's only until these two vital tasks are complete that they go back to their home church and recount all that God did in their mission. Okay? Does it make sense? So Luke is very clear. He wants us to see that the mission's not done until these things are done. Alright, so the church has a theology of suffering and the elders are there to help guide that church long term into the future. So let's pray.